let's talk about two. what it's like Theater. being a TA these days in political science. Sure. What's it like being a TA these days in political science? So I'll tell you what it's like being a TA these days in political science. The students are bright for the most part. Now I can't speak for every school, but at the University of Toronto, the students were bright. They did a good work. They put a lot of work into their papers. I already mentioned to you before, Lola. And Ziva. They make grammatical mistakes, but nothing more outrageous than what you and I sometimes make. So they're diligent researchers. I heard a lot, this is for the people out there. I want you to know something. I've heard a lot that students are snowflakes, that students are weak and oversensitive and very easily triggered. Now, do you think this is the case? In my experience, no. My experience working with students over five years in topics that were pretty controversial at times, whether it was race, um, social construction of identity, the way that Aboriginals were treated in the residential school system in Canada, um, eugenics, and many other Those topics. Yeah, con very controversial topics. I can't think of a single time, I can't think of a single time that I had a snowflake student. And I had probably, let's see, 300 students during that time. And I also don't know from any of the other teaching assistants, and we had a thousand students in um, the introductory course to political science at the University of Toronto every year, over a thousand students. And I don't even remember hearing from anybody else the case of highly sensitive, overreacting snowflake students. Did you hear any cases of TAs being snowflakey yes. a little bit? So in my experience, maybe it's just a matter of perspective, but I can tell you, I didn't have any students fall apart at some controversial idea or suggestion, but I definitely had snowflake professors and there were definitely snowflake teaching assistants. So about the snowflake professors, you already know, some of you who've watched my earlier videos already know that there were four professors who resigned from my dissertation committee at the University of Toronto in very much in snowflake fashion because they were, it was no longer a safe space for them. The ideas were too controversial. It's kind of pathetic, a little bit scary for that to happen amongst the professors. But nevertheless, that's what it was. So many snowflake professors. Okay, the way it works as a teaching assistant, if any of you know, is that I am, in my case anyways, I had three groups of 30 students and we would meet once a week. So they'd see, they'd take the regular class with the professor. Of then, 800 students? Yeah, 800, 800 to 1,000 students or so in the main lecture. Then they would come to the tutorial in groups of 20 or 30 and we would go over some of the course material, make sure they understood it and have discussions based on whatever discussion questions were relevant to that week's Do readings. you have any strict guidelines as to how to conduct the um, tutorials? No, we had no strict guidelines on how to conduct the tutorials that was left up to students, to graduate students for the most part. Sometimes a professor would say, it would be nice if you'd cover at least these two or three topics, but they never said you must do 
a, dis a 20 minute discussion followed by a 20 minute lecture with the exception of um, about four writing tutorials per year that were very structured exercises in basic writing skills. And even that had flexibility within the structure. But for the most part, teaching assistants were free to run their tutorials as they saw fit. And everybody did it, I assume, according to their own preferences. So for some people, it's nice to have the students do most of the talking. Other teaching assistants prefer to have it be mostly them talking and explaining the concepts. What, do you, what did you find uh, worked best for students? Well, what I found work, worked best for students was always to make sure that we went over the key concepts of that week's readings, that week's assigned readings, just to make sure that as much as possible we cemented the basic understanding that was expected. And so we'd go over the key concepts, we'd go over the key arguments from the reading, and we'd have discussion. Sometimes the students would discuss with themselves in little groups, and sometimes um, I would ask a question and they would just put up their hands and answer if they had anything to say. So I always thought that the key benefit that I could give to the students or the main, I always saw my task as making sure the students understand the basic concepts. Anything you can do to help make sure the students understand the basic concepts. Yeah, I remember uh, a couple of times you mentioned that when you were teaching or explaining socialism, one could think that you're a socialist. When you were explaining uh, liberalism, one could think that you're completely... Yeah, liberal. yeah. So my view, and I know a couple of professors I know um, at other universities, they share this view. So what Lola was saying is when I taught uh, Marx, you wouldn't know where I stand on Marx because I devoted myself to explaining the concepts as best I could, as though I were Marx's number one student. What about anti-Marx? Yeah, same with anti-Marx. You give every, you present every, we're at the, I assume we're at the university to learn something, not just to get, like we didn't join a political party in order to hear the party platform and go around espousing it from door to door. We came to a university to learn about the key ideas and key arguments uh, in political science anyways that have informed political thinking over centuries. In, in the case of political theory, sometimes over millennia. So naturally, you teach Marx, at least at first, as though you're the most convinced Marxist there is. And you teach Hegel as though you're the most convinced Hegelian there is. And John Stuart Mill and anybody else who comes across um, the syllabus for that year. So I always felt you should present the arguments as um, convincingly as you can. For, uh, for each author. But aren't you afraid that students would pick up on your enthusiasm with which you describe uh, socialism and uh, then become socialists and start burning uh, burning the books of old and whatnot? Okay, so the question if the question is maybe the students would become over, where they would catch my enthusiasm for teaching Marx or anybody else and they would become red-pilled or whatever the case might be. They would take swallow the drink the Kool-Aid of whichever author I happen to be talking about at the time. Well, remember, teaching assistant goes on the professor's syllabus. So I didn't assign any works of my own. I might refer to articles that were relevant that came up in the news from that day or, you know, mention scholarship that was relevant. But for the most part, we're following the professor's syllabus. And here's why I mentioned that. 
So if the only assigned readings in the course, so if the course by itself were already ideologically slanted, so if I taught, if it was a course only on Marx or only on Marxist ideas, and you took that principle of being like the number one, Marx's number one student, presenting everything as he would understand it as favorably to him as you can do, then yeah, that could leave students um, too one-sided. But in an introduction to political science or an introduction to political theory, socialist thought is always taught alongside libertarian, conservative, liberal. There's always a mix. So people don't know. You teach, for example, um, John Stuart Mill, his defense of free speech as passionately as you teach Plato's defense of censorship. So which one students will most uh, resonate with depends hopefully on, on the strength of the arguments that each author has and on the student's own psychological constitution, you know, or the... But aren't you afraid that you're going to indoctrinate students into being, uh, you know, a certain way? No, as I say, in my view, it's only indoctrination if you're only presenting one side of the story. But when there is on the syllabus a number of different approaches and you present each of them as strongly as you can, then it's left for the student to decide where they stand on any number of them. You know what I mean? Like, as long as we were raising, for every argument that we raised, we raised the counter argument. Mm -hmm. For every time that we mentioned uh, a liberal author, we mentioned an argument in political theory where this is appropriate. We mentioned an illiberal argument, like in Nietzsche, for example, he's the key case there, and Plato in his own way as well, because censorship is not... not uh, Censorship is incompatible with ideas about free speech. So, well, then as I long as Nietzsche being the, on the left, well, Nietzsche has okay. Without going into the full backstory, the best way of seeing Nietzsche's role at the university is like this. Um, I can even put it into a phrase that came to mind to me two years ago, which is basically two or three years ago which is uh, the, ta the leftist takeover of the university or to the extent to which there's a leftist takeover of some departments in the university, uh, identity politics and all the rest of it. It's kind of like, some people will find this offensive, but you can't say things without offending people these days. So I'm going to say it anyways. When slaves read Nietzsche. So let me just explain that. So Nietzsche has a view, amongst many other things, that there's two types of morality. Slave morality and master morality. Slave morality is uh, stems from the resentment that weak and poor and sick people, comparatively speaking, have for rich, strong, you know, beautiful, healthy people. So because you have like a class of natural aristocrats, you know, the noble born, they're just, they're more, they're, as I say, they're more beautiful, they're stronger, and they're braver thanks honey yeah, you're welcome they're braver and they have all of these you know excellences well if you resent that one thing you can do is you can set up your own moral system that flips flips the hierarchy puts them at the bottom and you at the top well you say it's no longer the it's no longer the brave but you know the peacemakers they're the truly peaceful it's no longer the proud and noble it's now the meek and humble it's no longer the brilliant um, creators, some, you know, the lowly worker or something like that, you see? 
So Nietzsche called that a reevaluation, uh, reevaluation of all values, the initial sense. So you have a bunch of resentful slaves, the resentful of the of the better people, and the slaves create a moral inversion to put themselves on the top of the hierarchy. Uh, and along comes Nietzsche, basically, and reverts things back to their natural order. So the master morality puts the excellent, you know, as I said, the excellent set of uh, characteristics at the top and calls the weak, sick, pathetic, ugly, um, calls it what it is, calls a spade a spade in that case. So that's a right, you know, you could say that's a right-wing view, right? That's a reactionary view. It's against social democracy. It's against the masses. It's against equality. It's for hierarchy. It's for the few. It's aristocrat or aristocracy of the soul. Um, but when, uh, when leftists got their hands on this, they very intelligently took all of the conceptual firepower from Nietzsche and uh, away they went. So they were able to turn his concepts about the relationship of power and morality against uh, everybody who had something to say in favor of hierarchy, in favor of morality, reducing everything to some sort of struggle for power without ever including themselves uh, authentically in their own analysis. So Alan Bloom, if you have, haven't heard of him, you can look at a book called Closing of the American Mind. Alan Bloom uh, he argued in that book that there's been a Nietzscheanization of the left. So even though Nietzsche is originally a thinker of the right, he's become co-opted by the left and exerted in his new leftist form a big influence on uh, academia. So as I just finished saying, even though Nietzsche is a figure of the right, he's had his biggest influence at the university in his leftist form. Leftists read Nietzsche, they weaponized some of his arguments, took what they thought would best, could best be useful as a conceptual weapon against conservatives and against others, and were very successful in doing that. Now, my, uh, my original dissertation proposal just to remind you, four people quit my dissertation committee. I was accused of being everything from A to Z. You have the National Post article in my first video in this series if uh, you want to know the details about that. But the first person who quit my committee, a University of Toronto professor of political theory named Ronald Beener, his latest book is called Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far Right. He was my first um, dissertation supervisor. He resigned after my 2014 TVO interview with Steve Pakin about Alexander Dugan. And the first version of my, my first dissertation proposal, it said that like Nietzsche, Heidegger has also been appropriated by the left. So there's been a Nietzscheanization of the left. That's Alan Bloom's phrase. And there's been a Heideggerianization of the left. So a lot of leftist political philosophers have borrowed very heavily from Heidegger, not in order to have a Nazi political theory, but in order to have uh, left leftist political theory. And I, maybe I'll have to make a video on the relationship between Heidegger's philosophy and leftist political um, ideals, how those two were combined so successfully by this group of left Heideggerians. 
But my, so my initial dissertation proposal said, if Heidegger has been prime, predominantly uh, impactful in academia and in the fields of political theory and political philosophy on the left, but we know that he's not like of himself on the left, you know? So what if we combine a right-wing reading of Heidegger or let's say a non-leftist reading of Heidegger and see whether that gives us better access to the role of Heidegger in political theory and to what Heidegger is actually saying. So basically it's like you have this great thinker who's been, he's become the, he's become one part of the political spectrum has claimed them for himself, has claimed them, has claimed one part of the political spectrum has claimed him for themselves. But you know, that's a puzzle because he doesn't belong to that part of the political spectrum. Nobody thinks that Heidegger was on the left. So how does that work? What's this operation of taking a thinker who doesn't belong to your part of the political spectrum and using him so much as a weapon? Like, what does that get wrong? What does that leave out? The question of how an author or a book or a tradition is interpreted exceeds the case of Nietzsche and Heidegger. But Nietzsche and Heidegger are extremely relevant for, um, for that problem at the university, you know? They're very relevant for that problem at the university because if you think... Okay, if you watch Jordan Peterson uh, and other public intellectuals, you'll hear sometimes that postmodern neo-Marxism has taken over sections of the university to great harm. Okay, they've done great harm. Well, a lot of this postmodern neo-Marxism owes, like uh, Peterson says, um, stems from our, stems from readings of Heidegger. So, for example, he might point to Derrida as being the worst among them. Well, if you take one step past Derrida, you're pretty much at Heidegger. I wouldn't go into a short paraphrase of what Derrida is, but basically, okay, let me, let's put it like this. And by the way, this is where Heidegger, Heidegger's, um, how should we put it? Heidegger's notions or Heidegger's views about the history of philosophy, they flow into a set of arguments that uh, leftist political players or agents or ideologues uh, might make. So let me give it to you in a nutshell. For those Heidegger experts out there and those Derrida experts out there, I apologize if this is too much of a nutshell. And by the way, there's a whole book, I think, called Derrida in a Nutshell or an essay he wrote on the nutshell. But let's forget about that. So this is going to be brief, but it's going to be helpful, I think. Um, Heidegger had said that philosophy has a history. So if you take, you can say, okay, let's talk about the history of philosophy. So like it began sometime in ancient Greece and it's developed through history and it's had a variety of its phases. And you, if you take an introductory to an introductory course on philosophy, you could name some of the big names from, uh, Plato. Plato, okay. Aristotle. Plato, Aristotle. Who came first? Plato. Plato. Okay, Aristotle. Socrates came first. Fine. That was Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Maybe you'll skip ahead and get to like Aquinas. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You know something about Kant, Hegel. Wouldn't go that Nietzsche, far. Heidegger. So you know, there's kind of like <laughs> phases. So there's if we talk about post, just take take it like this. If we talk about postmodern. So postmodern. If you just think about what that term implies. It's already identified in relationship to another period called modern. 
And modern is already identified in relationship to another period, pre-modern. When you talk about anything postmodern, you're already implying also modern and pre-modern. They kind of go together as a package. So you've got a history of philosophy. Like you got the ancients, Plato, Aristotle, and a bunch of other people. You have the moderns and the Enlightenment thinkers kind of who came along and you know upended some of the old philosophical teachings. And then you have postmodern thinkers, and we don't even need to get into the details about who they are. So um, Heidegger had said that there's um, there's like an inner logic to the history of philosophy, and that logic is a gradual forgetting of being. So we used to have a closer relationship. The human being used to have a closer relationship to being at the start of the philosophical process, and gradually became alienated from that relationship to being, and being became ever more uh, it, it took itself away from us and we forgot about it. Is being God? Because I heard this description from the rabbis. Is being God? So I would leave that question to the side for, uh, for Heidegger. You know, obviously there are parallelisms, but if you're just talking about his, uh, you know, there are parallelisms, but if you just talk about his thought. So he's, he, had, he said, look, it, we've gone further away from being. Being has taken itself away from us. And we've moved gradually into a nihilism, to a nihilistic uh, era. So again, this isn't this lecture is not not lecture. This this interview, this video, whatever we're doing here, it's not about the full details of Heidegger's view. I only want to say that he thought that in Nietzsche, this process had come to uh, it had culminated. Nietzsche was the end of philosophy, and Heidegger had his finger on the pulse of a new inception of philosophy something like a new dispensation like what? if you want to if you want to rephrase this in theological language uh god had revealed himself this is a this is a is he like a prophet or what? this is a distortion yeah but if i say if you want to retranslate this into religious language for a minute it's kind of like god had revealed himself uh more fully to the ancients and then gradually that light of God had dimmed and souls had become closed to God all the way to Nietzsche where God was invisible to us completely and our hearts were closed to him completely. Therefore, you have the coarse philosophy of, uh, of Nietzsche. But Heidegger, in Heidegger, once again, the soul becomes open to the presence of God but in a new and fundamental way. So let me explain what I mean by I new and fundamental see, way. I, I can see how Heidegger might have had many um, Jewish followers. Yes, definitely. Because it, it is Jewish belief that I, I was surprised to um, learn about it um, from rabbis. That, you know, they, they say that, no, before people used to be closer to God. Yeah, what so look. supposed to mean? If you, very basically, what is a progressive mentality? Progressive mentality is that things, that the truth unfolds in time in a way that we have more light now than we had before. That as history moves forward, the views of the past are revealed to be prejudices and superstitions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, like in so that's why some progressive politicians like Justin Trudeau and Barack Obama and other people in their own ways at their own time say things like uh consider well it's 2016 
or it's 2018, to be an argument, you know, well, the fact that it's 2018 and not 2017 or 2012 or 1990 or 1860 or 1540, right? As the timeline unfolds, we have more of the light of the truth. So you, if you are a relic or you're, think about the people who um, call some Americans or some other simple people medieval in their beliefs. Well, what does it mean to be medieval? It means you belong to a time whose time has passed. And it's passed, not in the sense that it was better then, but in the sense that it was worse then. There was more superstition and more prejudice. So the past is the era of superstition and prejudice. And the future is the era of scientific knowledge and um, true belief, let's say. Well, Heidegger's view, like the view of, um, it's not the only view, but Heidegger's view, like the view of some others, is that as time progressed or as history went forward, the most fundamental thing was left behind. So this view is that there's more light in the past than there is in the present. That the best is with the ancestors, that we've fallen away. It's a different notion of the relationship between truth and time. Now, again, in Heidegger, the relationship between truth and time is complicated. This is not a this is not an exposition, you know, fully of Heidegger's views on the relationship between time and truth, or between being and time, like the name of his most famous uh, work. All that I'm saying is he had a view of the history of philosophy that it had gradually being had abandoned humanity, and humanity had forgotten being. Can but you explain to it in the modern terms. Hold on a second. Not in theological terms, because it's so confusing. I mean, they didn't have cars; they have horse carriages. Yeah. So his view does not physical okay. labor. So the question is, well, look, they didn't they didn't have the technological advancements that we have. Um, you bring up a point that plays an important part in how Heidegger sees these things. So, how do we? What do we mean by technology? How do we assess the worth of technology? What do we think uh, dictates? A big part of the question is how do we how do we conceive of what it is to be human, and how do we conceive of the relationship between human being and the world around us? So if you think that if you interpret the world around us as material nature, which can be uh, brought under mathematical and geometrical and chemical physical laws in order to be exploited for the ever increasing comfortable self-preservation of humanity. That's one view of the relationship between human being and the world that we live in, right? Human being and natural being, our ability to have dominion over the domain of natural being, as I say, through scientific um, principles and to become dominant over nature, to make it a matter of uh, technical mastery for the sake of our increasing comfortable self-preservation. Like, you know, you have air conditioners and you have refrigerators. You have genome modification now. When you're a little bit too hot, you turn on the AC. When you're a little bit too cold, you turn on the heater and the rest of it. All of the comforts of life that are the result of scientific conquest of the natural world, mastery of laws and dominion over nature for the sake of comfortable self-preservation. Heidegger's view, uh, as I would put it for the purposes of this conversation, is that that relationship of the human being to the world around us depends to an extent on 
a set of interpretations of our own being, of being as such, and of the being of the world, uh, of even of the question, even an answer, even presupposes an answer to the question, what is the world and what is world? And even though this seems very high level and abstract, his view was that you can continue to uh, peel back the layers of the onion and get to a more primordial um, revelation to ourselves of who we are and our relationship to being that is no longer that is no longer technological uh, in the sense that we think again. We are a thinking being, the world is an extended being, and our job is to exert our dominion over it for the sake of our comfortable self-preservation. So he his language about these things is completely different. And a lot of people find that language uh, mysterious or off-putting or um, nonsensical. But it's only nonsense. It's no more nonsensical than Spanish is to a non-Spanish speaker. You have to you have to expose yourself to what makes that language meaningful. And a big part of what makes that language meaningful is some idea about the key concepts in the history of philosophy, how they've changed, how they've related to one another from thinker to thinker, and to, uh, to think very deeply about what philosophy is, what it means to philosophize. Not like you would do in a textbook, not like you would do in an introductory class on philo in philosophy, not like you would do at the feet of someone who is a dilettante in these things but to make it a matter of okay there's an old there's an old story of a boy a, a young boy a young probably by now story of a young uh, young man who got it into his head that he wanted you know let me do this again let me say this again okay scratch that there's there's a story of a there's a story of a boy who hurt, who hears about a wise man who lives by the sea. His curiosity is piqued, and he decides that he would like to become wise himself. And so he goes to visit the old wise man to ask him for some advice, to ask him, you know, to become his pupil, to become his student. So he goes to the sea uh, one day, and he asks, he finds the wise man, and he says to him, Master, I seek wisdom. I would like to become wise. Can you help me? Um, and the man doesn't say anything to him. He just completely ignores him. Third day, he comes back, fourth day and the fifth day, and he's very persistent. And one day, when the master can see that, you know, he's not just going to come once or twice, but that he seems to have some sort of genuine uh, desire to study. Master begins to pay him attention. He says, come with me. He walks the boy into the water, about 10 steps in. Then he takes his head and he dunks it under the water and he holds it there. And he holds it and he holds it and he holds it. And then just as the boy, you know, if he leaves him there for 10 more seconds, he'll suffocate. 
he lets him up and the boy <sighs> truly is gasping, absolutely just gasping for air. Like you can imagine you would be if you'd been held under the water for that long. A few minutes pass, he comes to his senses and the master says, you want to become wise? The boy says, yeah, I do. He says, you know how badly you wanted air when I let go of your head in the water? That's how badly you must want wisdom if you truly want to be wise. So it's a matter of life and death. It has to be the only thing that you think about. It has to consume your existence as fully as the desire to breathe consumed the existence of that nearly suffocated boy in the story. So for Heidegger, when you ask about philosophy and its role in history and its meaning for humanity, it's not like reading an article on philosophy in Wikipedia. It's like having your head dunked in the water for 10 minutes by a wise old master and you come up wanting only one thing. That's how he reads Aristotle. That's how he reads Kant. And that's as a result of that experience, he's come to have some thoughts about human being and our relationship to uh, being as such. One of the things, um, one of the ways that he's had an impact on leftist thinkers is that you can say there are two parts to his view about the history of philosophy. So one is that it has had a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's come to an end in Nietzsche. And the second is that it can begin again, like Christ reborn, Phoenix from the ashes. But the new, this new dispensation of philosophy is not a continuation of, of uh, the philosopher who came before Heidegger. It's once again, um, as I told you, he had a view that we'd moved away from being and being had moved away from us. This is once again, the two things coming together to produce that original explosion, a new inception of philosophy, another beginning, a new revelation, not just another modification. Hang on. So the first part, the first part that, that the history of philosophy has come to an end, that's what leftists, I mean, thoughtful philosophical leftists have taken from Heidegger. And here's how it works. They say the key concepts that you used to operate with, like reason, truth, nature, knowledge, morality. Are they that being? No. They say all of these key concepts, take especially like truth, nature, and reason. Those concepts are illusions. They, Heidegger has shown, the end of the history of philosophy has shown that they had kind of a black hole at their heart. You thought they were, you thought they were a coherent unit, a concept that made sense, human nature and truth and our ability to know it. And they come along, and here's a little bit of jargon that you may have heard from popular culture, from the campus wars, from Peterson, from any of a number of other sources. They deconstruct those concepts to show how they're a result of competing power claims. So the concept of, of truth isn't because there's something like truth 
in, in itself, it's because groups who wanted to be powerful over other groups called those things truth that supported their social position. You see? So this unmasking of concepts that used to be relatively, let's say, unproblematic, like it's now, if you think you have an argument against postmodernism by saying there's, there's human nature and there's human reason and we can know and there is the truth. So you haven't yet fully faced the challenge of postmodernism because you're just restating the very thing that they are disputing, you see? Mm -hmm. So it's like you're just restating it. You actually, in order to have, an, I mean, you can respond to them effectively in a number of ways, but to take them on their own terrain would be to show why the deconstruction of these concepts on the basis of Heidegger's philosophy of history and on the basis of some other things like uh, on the basis of some other things without going into the details, you'd have to show that the deconstruction of these concepts is, is not valid or that there's more to the story than that. And one of the most sophisticated in the best sense, uh, one of the most sophisticated responses to left Heideggerianism. So the view that concepts like truth, nature, hierarchy, the good, okay, anything that you might think, any, anything that you might invoke as a response to postmodernism, those are all concepts that they think have lost their, uh, there's like a black hole at the center of all of those concepts, which de deconstructive thinkers just point out that black hole. And then it's like the illusion what you thought was the truth becomes an illusion before your eyes. And Derrida is in many ways uh, very skilled at doing this and in no way so easily dismissed when he does it. But one of the most sophisticated responses to this set of left, uh, Heidegger, to the Heideggerianization, sorry, to, yeah, to the Heideggerianization of the left is to say, well, hang on here, fellas, ladies and gentlemen. Uh -huh. And whoever else there may be, uh, people, hold on there, people. Humanoids? Hold on there, humanoids and post-humanoids, anti-humanoids, okay, trans-humanoids. Hold and on, dogs. hold on, because there's, uh, you've only got half the story. Yeah, Heidegger talked about the history of philosophy. It's coming to an end in Nietzsche and had exposed, let's say, this uh, black hole sun or whatever at the heart of all of these concepts allowing you to point out how they self-deconstruct and allowing you to write these brilliant, sometimes brilliant, sometimes obviously imitations of, of uh, Derrida's mastery, like pale and pathetic imitations. Um, you forgot the second half of the story, the new dispensation, the new revelation, the new inception of philosophy. Now, the, uh, the leftist Heideggerians and the liberals in the center they have an easy response. So leftists say, oh, revelation, inception, beginning, uh, newness, those are also all deconstructed concepts, you see? So you say beginning and we say continuation. You say revelation and we say, you're, you're not new to the history of philosophy, you're just repeating the very thing you just criticized. You say okay? yes. Yeah, exactly. Say no. You say yes, we say no. You say no, we say yes. So mm -hmm. it's very easy to do. They, very, they just point out the inconsistency. But, and that was a big part of my dissertation, by the way, showing how, uh, <laughs> no, don't go in there. Well, no, hold on. Hold no, on. no, hold I, your, I, I didn't really catch, just I didn't really catch what you were saying. What were these words? 
truth. Okay, so... Reason. Okay. Nature. Okay. So human. In a bar, there knowledge. comes the... Knowledge. Okay. Do you understand? Like, the key concepts that you would weave together to try to defend... You know, people say, well, post-truth, post-truth. Trump is post... No, we don't want to be post-truth. We want to be truth, not post-truth, just truth. Who says that Trump is post-truth? Who doesn't say that Trump is post truth? But it's different. It's oh, post truth is everywhere. Get with the program. Post truth is everywhere. But there, you might say people are post truth for two reasons. People say Trump lies all the time. Yeah, that's Trump lies. Trump lies all the time. But more, the sophisticated commentariat also says very often that we're in a post truth age, and they'll say that uh, not just because, not just because Trump lies, but because there are some authoritarian ideologues like. Putin in Russia and Trump in the States and circles around them who no longer believe in the existence of truth. So to them, you don't even make a distinction between truth and lie because to call something a lie already implies that it's, it defines it in relationship to the truth. If you've rejected something like the truth, then you no longer have its opposite in the sense, the lie. So they just are like, all that exists is what you stipulate basically. So it's so post-truth like, in that sense. So is it like the the different description of the same event? Like Fox will highlight one, the story in one. No. Way? So you're po- you're pre-postmodern. You still think that. Am I the, orthodox or what? No, you're not orthodox. Don't flatter yourself. <laughs> you're pre-postmodern. So you still think there can be something like the same event. So a postmodern thinker would say, "I realize I'm simplifying." Okay. Are they crazy? No, they're not crazy. They, um, they're not crazy. So we have to separate between the pathetic imitators who don't know the fundamental arguments and the sophisticated theorists who do know the fundamental art, uh, the fundamental arguments. Okay. In the end, it's for you to decide whether they're all charlatans or not. Um, but no, they're not crazy. So what I'm saying is a lot of these people read a lot of these great theorists okay, a lot of them are french where philosophy philosophy meant, means a lot more in the french curriculum than it does in the american one and you know it could be you would have to be ashamed of yourself never to have read at least some parts of heidegger and other uh philosophers indebted to him um, but if they dispute for example that there can be such a thing as the same event so here's what i have learned here's what i've learned i used to think I used to think in my undergraduate years, postmodernist people are complete idiots. They're just jokers. They're fakers. Everything they say is self-refuting. You don't even have to, don't even bother reading it. Don't even bother, bother thinking about it. It's just pomo garbage. There's nothing to it. Because I had, a, I had an influential first philosophy professor who set me on one path and, and kind of taught me to distrust me and the rest of the students to distrust uh, postmodernism. He was doing what he thought was his own civic duty <clears throat> in that case. Indoctrination. Yeah, indoctrination to a certain extent. Again, professors have a civic duty, but he uh, he cautioned us against self-refutations of postmodernism. But gradually, you form your own thoughts on these matters. And as I've said time and time again in my previous videos, and as I now must say once more, to recognize, let's say, Derrida's brilliance 
or to recognize the many ways in which he's making genuinely valid points. To learn and be, to have your whole outlook be informed. To learn. I assume that's what an education is about. You learn. You can't come out the same way you came in. There's the story of Rabbi Akiva, who went, you know, a Jewish sage among a number of other Jewish sages who had a mystical vision. And one person, you know, never came out of this mystical vision. Another person came out and went crazy. Another person, I don't know, nobody ever heard from again. But Rabbi Akiva, he had the vision and he came out and he was still himself. Well, I mean, you can have the experience and remain yourself. But you shouldn't really, in my view, in, in the course of an education, come out exactly the same way you came in because you should have learned something. So in the course of my education, I learned to give way more credit to at least Derrida, but not only Zizek you can learn from and these other thinkers you can learn from. But here's the point. To give them credit doesn't mean to become their lapdogs or their ideologues. You learn from Carl Schmitt, Heidegger, Leo Strauss. You read these things and learn from them. It doesn't mean that you're an apologist for them. It doesn't mean that you become a slave to them. But I've said that before. There's no need to belabor the point here. So you're pre-postmodern when you think there could be something as the same event when it comes to human affairs and human existence. So a lot of it, a lot of a, the program now. Listen, a lot of the program has to do with this. You, okay. If I was teaching somebody to try to have for themselves the insight that makes Heidegger comprehensible to them, okay? It's not just an additional piece of knowledge that you put in your head. It has to be a change of perspective. It has to be some kind of uh, reorientation of your outlook for a minute. So. Right. I can, I mean, okay. I can understand that. So what's something about yourself that you take for granted? Are you an individual? Yeah. You're an individual. Okay. Do you, is that, uh, do you take that for granted about yourself? I guess so. Yeah. Okay. I don't really question that. Do you, so yeah. you don't question it. And do you assent to the statement that you were an individual? Okay. Yeah. So there's a statement about yourself, about your being. Mm -hmm. I am an individual. So not just the property or characteristic that you have, like I have brown, brown curly hair or whatever the case might be. Right. It's don't now, it's on a different level of yourself. It's a statement about yourself. Mm -hmm. You made it easier on me by already saying you don't question it. Well, there's no philosophical inquiry into selfhood without questioning the self, but okay, you're an individual. So what does it mean to be an individual? And where do you derive the concept of individuality from as you apply it to yourself? And that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, it is a good question. So one of the, one of the basic experiences that you go through in a philosophical education is noticing that the things that you take for granted about yourself are questionable and that you start i'm not saying you're not an individual <laughs> i'm not saying that you're not an individual but i'm saying the statement i'm an individual is an interpretation of the nature of your existence so what kind of being must you be to have an interpretation of your own existence that's already one step past the question are you an individual you see you see what i'm saying so to move from like classical uh what do you call it 
classical liberalism. I'm an individualist and I'm for smaller government because I think human beings can make their own decisions. And, you know, I think that we know better for ourselves what we want than the government knows for us. And, you know, I just, we just want good jobs and lower taxes and, you know, no borders, no country. Like, okay, take all, all, whatever that is. Okay. Take any, or you say, no, you know, uh, more power to the workers because the workers are not capital, but labor, you know, labor is what builds this country. That sounds good too. They all sound good the more you understand them, but all of them are interpretations about the nature of human existence, including the claim I'm an individual. So we have to have some account of ourselves as beings that interpret ourselves. So we're already one step closer to Heidegger's world. We're a self-interpreting being. Well, where do we get the concepts for our self-interpretation? The recognition that you are a self-interpreting being already brings you one step closer to an understanding of Heidegger. So you're no longer just taking yourself for granted as an individual or as something else. You're now subjecting yourself to this process of like, well, not just who am I really? Who am I really? kind of, but with greater philosophical sophistication. So with some attention to how philosophers tend to produce the concepts with which we interpret ourselves. That's also interesting for Heidegger. So all of that comes into play. Tell me about the individual. Where does that come come from? You can't just give me an example and not expect me to go deep into that example. Okay, without, I don't want to go too deep into it with you. Fair. Just but tell me where, look, where that comes Let's say one way you could look at it is this, that, um, well, let me just ask you. So when you say about yourself that you're an individual, what do you, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like what characterizes being an individual? Wouldn't you know better? Well, but you call yourself an individual. Mm, yes, like I would say that I characterize myself as someone with, to whatever extent, my own thoughts, my own uh, desires, my own, um, I wanted to say being, but then kind of probably would dig myself a grave here. Yeah, okay, so somehow when we think about ourselves as individuals, it already implies some notion of being, thoughts, of what it is to have thoughts, yeah. of what it means to call those thoughts your own thoughts. Yeah. So there's already having, ownership, thinking, desiring, and being in some configuration. We could go further into any of these. So what does it mean to quote unquote, have your own thoughts? How much have you monitored what you call your thinking to confirm that those thoughts are your own? Do you mean that they've passed through your head and in that sense are yours? Do you mean that you are generating them? That you are thinking thoughts that other people haven't thought before? So we don't have to go down the road of um, all of these types of questions. My point. I need a drink. <laughs> the main the main point here is just that you can't dismiss 
So the main point here is just that there's something to uh, there's something to learn from Heidegger, and there's something to learn from the people who read him and write about him. And even though he's had his greatest impact at the universities uh, on the left, he doesn't. That's not his. That's not his natural home politically. As you know, he's a member of the uh, the Nazi Party and other things. But it's also not his natural home philosophically, because as I said. The left only takes his views on the end of the history of philosophy and doesn't take his views on the beginning of a new beginning of philosophy. Just well, there's one political philosopher who does take into account Heidegger's views of another beginning of, of philosophy. And in fact, he's got a book on Heidegger called Martin Heidegger, The Philosophy of Another Beginning, where this idea of a new inception of philosophy is at the center of this person's understanding of Heidegger. Well, that's Alexander Dugan. So Alexander Dugan, whatever else he might be to people, is somebody who's taken Heidegger seriously enough to make sense of Heidegger's view of a new beginning, as opposed to only reading Heidegger from the left. I needed more. So you have Heidegger, you have the people on the left who have had an impact at the university level, the Heideggerianization of the left together with the Nietzscheanization of the left. You have Alexander Dugan's, um, one of the only sophisticated political accounts of the new inception of philosophy that Heidegger writes about. Reading Heidegger does not make you a Nazi. Reading Dugan does not make you hate Ukrainians or anybody else. Now, there, that, that's not to say that there's no relationship between the philosophy and a political outlook, even if it may not be. So the fear, but I, as I said, I had snowflake professors, professors who wanted a safer space for themselves, keep Heidegger far away. You know keep what, Dugan far away. You know what you keep Millerman far away. What about um, the snowflake teas? About the snowflake teas. You, you had two. You know, I don't. I didn't have that many. I don't even want to say. Oh, okay, fine. As I said, teaching assistants—they can pick how they teach their courses. Mm -hmm. And you—you—you you, you were asking me. If I'm always championing Marx when we're teaching Marx, am I not indoctrinating the students? Mm -hmm. And I said, not if the syllabus includes alternatives, because then the students are presented with the alternatives. If the syllabus doesn't present alternatives, then I, take, I choose to supplement my presentation of the authors with potential critiques with potential criticisms, you know, so that I make sure the students are exposed. Even if the professor didn't plan for the students to be exposed to alternative perspectives, I ensure that the students were exposed to alternate, alternate perspectives. And my students seemed to appreciate that, even though the vast majority of them were on, you know, the vast majority of them who cared about any of these issues were sooner on the left than on the right, but they all appreciated my willingness to present a range of uh, arguments and counter arguments. I was never a propagandist in class, just a, just a teacher. 
because I thought the most important thing to do for the students was to make sure that they understand the basic concepts, I constantly reiterated the basic concepts in as many ways as I could do. Well, I took great pride in present, you know, talking to the class, like being, trying to be a clear, trying to present ideas super clearly, as clearly as I could. So I shared my notes with my class. I shared my notes with my class. That way they wouldn't have to write it down as I was talking. That way they could have it as a study guide or they could have it to think about it. They could follow up with me about it. I made notes for the tutorial and I shared my tutorial notes with my class. Mm -hmm. And I did that for years and my students seemed to love it. I had a website specifically for my students and I post my tutorial notes on the website for them together with a lot of other things. Like if I mentioned an article, I'd post a link to the article. Was it an open website? It was an open website, but only they had the link. But right. you know, it was an open website. There was yeah. no password to get in. So one day I heard that the notes that I had made for class were circulated. Well, I told you that I had about 60 students, but there were about a thousand students in the class. Hmm. So that means my, oh. my tutorial notes for the 60 students were circulated to a thousand students. Now I thought, that's amazing. That's great because it's a good resource. It's not a cheat sheet. Mm -hmm. It's to help them understand. Yeah. You see, they couldn't, they couldn't put it in their pockets or write it on the backs of their hand and do well in the class. It's a continuation of what a teaching assistant or professor has to do anyways. So what is, is it, what does a teaching assistant or professor have to, has to do? Teach the material as best as you can. How do you teach it? You talk about it, you write it on the board, you ask questions, you discuss, you field questions. You do everything you can do in your power in the time that you have with the students to try to help them understand. Right. You can't do, you can't force it into their heads. You know, they say about taking the horse to water and you, but you know, you can't make it drink, but you've got to take it to the water. So you take it to the water, you give them all the, you give them every explanation. And for the people who are visual, you draw it on the board. And for the people who are, you know, something else, you use kind of vivid examples. And for the people who are half asleep, you bang the desk, and raise your voice, wake them up. So everything that I could do, I did, including these notes. They circulated. And then one day the professor wrote to me, uh, I heard that you've been, have you been sharing your notes with your students? can you explain to me what your reasoning was? And I explained to her what I just have explained to you. Um, and she said, well, that was, how could you do such a thing? How could you be such an idiot? How, don't you understand what you're doing? And basically she was very upset. The professor was very upset. Did well, not just, see, just to the clarify. professor did not see things the way that I saw them when it comes to sharing my notes with the students. Okay. It goes without saying she didn't actually call you. Anything. She didn't call me an idiot, but she very nearly did. So she was upset. That I was sharing my notes with the students. Uh, she clearly saw her role as an educator differently than uh, than I did. <laughs> okay, that's all right. There can be. She said, "Would you please take them down?" Not a problem. She's the professor. I'm the TA. I took them down. I didn't like some of the bickering. I didn't like some of the innuendo and things like that. Uh, but it's not a problem. The moment she asked me to take them down, I did. But what I found out was that one of the other TAs had ratted me out. <laughs> and said, there's another TA, me, who's sharing his notes with the students. <gasps> oh, 
and like do going above and beyond what most TAs are expected to do. Uh, and she said something along the lines, I can't even remember who she said this to or how it got around to me, but she said, it's not fair that it's not fair to the other TAs if one TA is excellent, something like that. In other words, what she was saying was, let's all have a race to the bottom and do the least that's expected of us. Just have the students talk amongst themselves and don't even try to offer them anything. It's not fair to the other TAs if one of TA is sharing his notes with the students and the other TAs aren't. My view is that if you don't think that's fair, you should raise your game. Ask me for my notes. Work with somebody else. Figure out your own method. But if you don't think it's fair, you shouldn't drag everybody down to your level. If you think that someone's doing something better than you, you should make an effort to get up rather than tear them down. So I didn't, that was the pettiest TA moment. Let that be the worst of your problems, right? Like that's the pettiest TA moment that I had in five years when I found out that a TA was unhappy with, uh, not just unhappy with the fact that I was sharing my notes with my students and ratting me out and was supported uh, by the professor. That, that, this is what that. I'm, I'm surprised by. I'm not surprised about other TAs bickering about, you know, Here's the thing, but, so the, but why the professor reacted you know, in such a way? I'll tell you this, the next semester, a different TA, uh, sorry, a different professor replaced that one the, by design. Mm -hmm. And I emailed him and I said, Hey, look, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Professor, Mr. Professor, man, you should know that I'm a problem child TA. <laughs> I, I've been sharing my notes. And I, I was doing it under the last professor and she didn't like it. She came down on me hard and I just uh, kind of want your, uh, I'm not going to share my notes with any students this year, but I kind of want to hear from you what your thoughts about this are. And he took a completely different approach, much better one I thought. He said, your view of teaching is exactly the same as mine. I think that we should do everything we can do in our power to make sure that students understand as much as they can understand, but I think, he said, that students will gain a lot from having to write this out themselves as opposed to having it written uh, for them by you. And so even though I, mean, I support... Like learning yeah, how to summarize. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. And so write quick notes. Even though it's, it's in the right spirit of things to want to give them my tutorial notes, I'm depriving them of something that they can genuinely gain from them, for themselves by trying to do their own summaries. And... That's, that, that's, that's a totally sensible point, yeah. okay? But, but it's a different argument than if one TA is going above and beyond, then everybody has to go above and beyond. And it's not fair to, it's not fair to the pathetic TAs amongst us if, if somebody is just doing his job right. Mm -hmm. Anyways, most of the TAs in, uh, in my five years that I, I didn't listen, I was pretty much, I didn't, I didn't interact with a lot of them to be fair. Many of them went about their own businesses, I went about mine. And many of them uh, I like and respect, and they're friends of mine, maybe watching this video. So I was lucky, you know. Hi, Igor. Yeah. So let that, let that be the worst of your problems if in five years uh, at a job site you only have one or two coworkers who give you a little bit of a headache. So the, the students, I didn't experience any snowflakes. The TAs, one or two at worst. The professors, oh man. There's no hope for the professors. There's no hope. Don't you no, I'm just kidding. Professor? I'm just kidding. There's a lot. Uh, as upset as I was 
at the four professors who quit my committee and at a bunch of other professors of whom I have a low opinion for various reasons. Uh, there were a lot of professors who definitely, not a lot, there were a handful of professors who earned, uh, earned a place, earned their place at the university, behaved like educators, uh, stood up for principal, had a spine, were good, good at what they did, were good supervisors, good people. So the supervisor who supervised my dissertation, so I told you that my first supervisor, Ronald Beener, quit my committee and then went on to write that book, Dangerous Minds, Heidegger, what? Nietzsche, and the Return of the Far Right. What he's was, very, he's very which much, circles did this book become popular in? Well, I'll tell you in a second, but I have to say the supervisor who replaced him, the supervisor who stayed on my committee till the end, uh, I won't name names, I won't name her name because I don't want to, you never know, but uh, Ruth Marshall, <laughs> one of the best, one of the best, truly one of the best. <laughs> So there you go. There were some professors who were, were who were worthy of the title and some who were, I thought their conduct was not so good. But Beener, to his, uh, you got you to gotta say this, you got to say this about Ronald Beener. He had an issue with the fact that I was working on Alexander Dugan because Dugan is published by Arctos and Arctos is Richard Spencer and Richard Spencer was married to Nina Kupriyanova and Nina Kupriyanova was translating for Dugan. Ah, you connect the networks and pretty soon you'll go crazy. So he had an issue with all of that and uh, people can have an issue with that. That's fine. It's a bit different when you're a professor of political theory, I think. But he had an issue with that and he wrote a book. He wrote a book arguing that, uh, arguing that you know, Nietzsche and Heidegger are having this resurgence in the minds of American white nationalists and Russian neo-Nazis and little Millermans running around the university becoming fascist propagandists. It's really hard to picture as a little man, six foot eight person. But was it public under, by an academic you, press? You out there in YouTube land and wherever else you may be watching this, you must understand that under this calm, sensible, moderate demeanor, there's truly a, a malicious far-right propagandist according to the National Post and some of the professors in my department. So, listen, there's a legitimate cause for concern when you have this question that Ronald Beener wrote in, uh, in an article for the Chronicle of Higher Education. The article was called, When Neo-Nazis Loved Your Book. <laughs> because the first review of his book was written by a website, uh, a website on the far right. It's caught him probably by surprise. And in this Chronicle of Higher Education article, he raises a fair question, which is in the classroom, when you're teaching alternatives to liberal democracy, which on one hand you have to do if you're trying to teach people and not just indoctrinate them, how as an educator can you do that responsibly? How can you teach people, for example, a criticism of morality without pushing them off the cliff towards immorality? How can you let them know that there have been other opinions about the best political regime or about the nature of political life without inadvertently uh, making those alternatives overly appealing to them. He makes a big deal of the fact that Richard Spencer says he was quote-unquote red-pilled by Nietzsche. So he took a philosophy class, the philosophy professor taught Nietzsche and yada yada yada, Richard Spencer is saying Heil Trump. 
you know, so he's worried that educators can have an influence on their students uh, that is uh, the opposite of what civic education should be. Civic education should teach students to have uh, respect for their own regime's principles. Like, for example, civic education in Canada means you should have respect for Canadian institutions. You should have a knowledge about Canadian institutions, Canadian history. You should have respect for Canadian institutions and Canadian history and so on in every other regime. But if you start teaching the alternatives, there's the risk that you'll push the students toward those alternatives. But that's a genuine problem. I think he's right to have uh, identified it. All of you who are watching this ought to think about it. Even read uh, read his book if you think it'll be helpful. Um, I have my thoughts on the matter, as you can imagine, that go beyond uh, beyond the scope of this video. But it's a problem. If in education, this is what I want to end this video on. So the relationship between education and indoctrination in the university. The university has a place, and I'm when I talk about the university again, I mean the, the humanities and social sciences. I mean political science, philosophy, social science, things like that. I'm leaving to the side the sciences and um, other such disciplines. The university should not be a place of unrestricted free speech, always and under all circumstances. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's right. What I want to say, actually, I want to say it differently. I want to say that there's a place for civic education in the university. And if you equate civic education with indoctrination or propaganda, because you're teaching people to have, uh, you're teaching people not to view your own country's principles as equal to other countries' principles, but as more valuable. So you're giving people a civic education teaching them that the rule of law is better than the absence of a rule of law. A, constitu a constitutional regime is better than a regime with uh, no constitution. That the rights and liberties we protect are better than other governments that trample over those rights and liberties. And even teaching them that our failings, our failings do not mean that we are morally unworthy. They just mean that we have high ideals that sometimes we fall from, you know, because everybody's imperfect or whatever. Instilling in people a sense of respect for their own government and for their own political principles is a legitimate function of the university, I think. So Your mother in law I, still quotes. Yes, exactly. My <laughs> Soviet mother in law still quotes the education that she received in the Soviet Union. Bumper sticker Marxism, which is fine. Yeah, but um, her but I wanna I wanna <laughs> say yeah, but I just wanna be clear about that. She didn't political science, a course, a course in political science at the University of Toronto should teach something about the Canadian uh, regime. And it should not just teach it, but it should teach and defend the principles of the Canadian regime. And if it teaches alternatives, which it should do, it should first have set up the case in favor of the Canadian regime. And if it teaches the alternatives fairly, it shouldn't do so as an enemy of the Canadian regime. In other words, educators at the university have a task in forming the civic uh, character of the university students. And that's incompatible with bashing, you know, your own uh, regime, whether it's from the left or whether it's from the right. And it's incompatible with trying to push your students too far to the left or too far to the right.
But by the same token, it's, it's, un, it's unforgivable if the university does not have a home for free speculation on the best regime. There should be at least somewhere in the university, or let me put it differently, there should be at least somewhere in the university where you don't have to worry about civic, how should I put it, about being a good citizen, about flattering your regime, about defending your laws, about putting your, puffing yourself up and putting everybody else down. I don't mean there should be somewhere at the university where you get leftist propaganda or rightist propaganda. I mean, there should be at least somewhere in the university where you can just think freely and let your thought go beyond the bounds of your political party, beyond the bounds of your country, beyond the bounds of any identity that you might think that you have. There should be somewhere where you're free to let your thought exceed the way that it does limitations that are imposed on it including patriotic limitations, ideological limitations, even moral limitations. There should be a place where you can think beyond the confines of whatever you think is a moral dictate. Even if most of the university is dedicated to civic education, to the formation of the characters of the students, it has to, like, your whole body is not your brain, but there's a place in your body for your brain. The whole university does not have to be free inquiry and free speech, but there must be a place in the university for free inquiry and free speech. You know what it reminds me? Soviet Union kitchen conversations, the разговоры по душам. There is no censorship there. This is this yeah. used to be right yeah. in the in the time of censorship of all the public spaces within all the public spaces. It was the privacy of your right. small kitchen table where you could actually gather with your friends. With mangoes and sunflower seeds and wine. That's just what we have on the table here. <laughs> so Lola saying, if you didn't hear that in the Soviet Union, these conversations at the kitchen table were the heart to heart, where the ideological masks dropped, or at least the, the, the place where they might drop and you might have a heart to heart and you might get behind, behind the ideology. So we don't want our universities to become like in the Soviet Union, where you know that you're not going to have a heart-to-heart -heart or a free, uh, free, inquiry. free inquiry at the university. You're only going to have to have it in the privacy of your own home around the kitchen table. Maybe we do want that. Maybe it's going to go that way. I don't know. But I still, uh, there's still room to defend the university as a place where we don't want, I, I hope we don't want our universities to become analogous to the Soviet censorship of thought and to the pushing everything to the boundaries of the private discussions of the, of the home. This is a plea to save at some part of the university from ideological takeover, whatever ideology it happens to be. Um, but you know, things can be much worse than a heart to heart conversation in the kitchen uh, with the people you love. Cause that's where we're recording this with, uh, with my wife Lola. So thank you for watching. That's all for tonight. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Sign up for more videos if you liked this. Please share with your friends. And uh, until next time. Wait. No.